Well, good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We are disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. And uh, we are in the midst of our series on grasping God's Word. We're talking about the Bible, what it is, where it came from, and how do we use it. And so last week we talked about what the Bible is. And just to uh, recap briefly on that, that we, rec- we saw that the Bible is actually not just one book, even though Bible means book. It's a holy book. Well, it means it's different than any other kind of book. It's actually a library of books, 66 of them to be in fact. And uh, so that's pretty good. And it's not just any kind of collection of books. It's holy. It's different, unlike any others, because it's our authority. Uh, this, the Bible is something that uh, as Christians that we get to have that helps us to make our lives make sense. And so we get to conform our lives to it instead of trying to make this Bible conform to our lives, which is a great thing. And so uh, very powerful that way. And the reason that it can be our authorities, we discovered that the Bible is God's word to us. And so it speaks with divine authority in our life. Now today, uh, we're going to talk about why I can make those crazy claims. Because really anybody can say, hey, this is God's word. But how do we know it's God's word? How do we get the Bible? Where did it come from? How come the books that we have in the Bible are in there, right? How come there are certain books that aren't in the Bible, right? We are asked that. And how do we know that the Bible we have today is actually what was originally written, right? I mean, it's important for us as Christians, if we're going to uh, conform our lives to the teachings that are in this, shouldn't we ask those questions? So we're going to talk about that today, where the Bible came from. Of course, before we do that, we do have our Bible memory verse, which talks about why we would want to do this. And so uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, you're going to have to just uh, uh, bear with us. You're going to learn some things. We're memorizing scripture this series just a little different. Those of you here last week, you can help me out with this. We have some imagery that's going to help you uh, memorize scripture. And so the first one uh, is going to be right here. Do you remember what was right here? Yeah, two racers, finish line, good. And then what was unique about the two racers? Yeah, time mouths. Yeah, little clocks on their mouths, the time mouths. And, and so we called them time mouthies, right? And so there's two of them running and, and one's going to win and you don't care about which, 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 one are you, which one are you paying attention to? The second time mouthy, that's who you are. And you can hear the crowd in the background going, time mouthy, time mouthy, right? Going to finish and you're paying attention to the second. Who cares about the first one? He's going to finish anyway. But the second one, that's what you care about. He's more handsome anyhow. And then behind the two time mouthies, uh, who's going to come in third? Yeah, three 16-year-old girls in the convertible, right? They, that's why they're driving their car. They're three 16-year-old girls. They ended up getting lost and now they're in the middle of this race and they're coming third. Yay for them. Okay, we'll come back to them in just a minute. But next to them over here, right in this spot, what was right here? Bibles. That's right. And how many Bibles? All the Bibles, all the scriptures. And what are the scriptures doing? They're, yeah, they're painting something, right? They're, they're painting masterpieces. And, what, and we could see what come out of their minds? Yeah, little thought bubbles. And they're being inspired by whom? God, yeah. So we have here all of the Bibles in the world painting. I have the Mona Lisa because it's beautiful, I guess. Uh, And then you have uh, them being inspired by God. And so for us, what does this remind us of? Well, all Scripture is inspired by God. All the Bibles, all Scripture is inspired by God, which happens to be the first line of 2 Timothy 3.16. So you see how this works? All right, so then who is over here? Do any of you guys remember who was up here? Yeah, the handyman. And how handy was he? 
six hands handy. Got six hands. And what does he make? He's, he's making sure this is what? Yeah, making sure this is true. Straight up and down, right? And uh, he's, he's working really hard, and so he's drinking something. What is he drinking? Juice. And how much juice is he drinking? Yeah, he's like full of juice, right? It's like squirting out his ears because he's just like drinking so much juice, making this true. And as he's working, then he sees us, and then what does he do? Yeah, he teaches us something. What is this handyman who's making this true going to teach us? What is true? Because that's what he's working on. He's the professor of what is true. There's our handyman and his juice teaching us what is true. And so what does this remind us of? Well, we know that all Scripture is inspired by God. And useful, like juiceful, to teach us what is true. You'll remember that, by the way. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. Who's over by the drum set? Geppetto. Yeah, our favorite dude, Geppetto. And Geppetto's making us something. What is he making us? Real eyes. That's right. He drops these eyeballs on the table. That's the first part of Pinocchio. And he's all happy. I made you real eyes. I made you real eyes. Right? How's Geppetto does? So... What does this help us? We have here, we have all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize. Huh? Yes, yes. This is not a TV now. What is this here? Remember? It's a billboard. It was a billboard, and the billboard said something. Can everybody remember? That's the hardest part of it. It says, it says, our lives matter, but it was spelled wrong. And that offended somebody, the grammar Nazi, right? And the grammar Nazi comes out. And what does the grammar Nazi say? The kicks in the door, our lives matter. What is wrong in our lives? And you have to do that in your mind the same way, because that's what a grammar Nazi would say. What is wrong in our lives? Right? Because the grammar Nazi's not happy. So over there, we have all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us. What is, what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. And then right here, this is my favorite one. Remember what was here? Yeah, Elvis. Elvis singing the national anthem, but he gets the words wrong. And then who comes to correct him? Yeah, the freaky clown from the cousin It or from the movie It, right? And he points to him in his best Donald Trump voice. What does he say? Wrong. Okay, so here we have, so in case you can't memorize the picture of that, here's Elvis, and he's got the words wrong, instead of, you know, oh, say, can we see, he's like, it's all about me, right? <laughs> then, <laughs> clown shows up, wrong. Okay, so, all scripture is inspired by God, and is useful to teach us what is true, and make us realize what is wrong in our lives, and corrects us. When we are wrong, okay? You got to do the voice because that's more fun. Corrects us when we are wrong. And then who is here? The teacher. Yeah, the teacher with a little pointy stick and all that kind of stuff. And what is the teacher teaching us? To do what is right. Yeah, she teaches us to do that. She's got, she does this by, she has you do a to-do list and divide it in half. So you remember, picture yourself writing down your to-do list, divide it in half and cross out everything that's on the left side. And then she writes on the chalkboard, do what is right. Okay, so let's go again. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us real eyes. It 
Ja, klar. Wives. When we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Very good. And then we get to the last part again, which is, oh, I don't know why that didn't. There you go. Teach us to do what is right. And then we get right back here. So we get the, the two timeouties and the three 16-year-olds. Second Timothy 3.16. You got it? Very good. If that wasn't weird enough for you, if you couldn't remember from last week, make it weirder. Because the stranger it is, the more you're going to be able to memorize. It's a way that I've uh, memorized some scripture and it's, been, it's helpful because uh, you can go back wherever you are in your mind. You can come back to the stage and you can walk around it, right? And so uh, it allows you to keep God's word with you, helps you to retain it. But as you walk around the stage, also spend some time thinking about what does that mean? All the scriptures, not just some, are inspired by God. We're going to talk about that today. But it teaches us, there's a purpose of Scripture. It teaches us what is true so our lives are right. It makes us realize, its, it's purpose is to open our, us up, to, to, it, to reveal something to us. There's an internal component of Scripture. If we're not just reading the Scripture and not remembering it, it doesn't, but it's make to realize something. What is wrong in our lives? Aren't you grateful that you don't have to worry about life and be like, well, I wonder why everything's falling apart. You're like, oh, this is what's wrong, but it goes beyond that. It actually corrects us when we're wrong. Not being like, you are naughty, but here's a better way. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And more than that, and then it shows us how to live that better way. It teaches us actually to do what is right. We want to have a life that makes sense. Well, we have God's word. And so this passage can help you with that, and I encourage you to take some time this week to, to walk around the stage in your mind if you need some reminders or a prompt. We do have that Bible memory verse card. If, if you like doing it the way that we usually do with the first letters and all that, uh, take that with you. All right. So now that we have God's word and we've had some fun, let's get to how do we know that it is God's word? Because that's a, a pretty audacious claim. Why is it authority? Uh, and really, where did the Bible come from? That's what we're going to talk about today. And... Uh, because uh, it didn't just show up. It didn't just come out of the clouds of heaven. In fact, we realized it's 66 different books. How did we get these books? And uh, what makes it so special? When we talk about it being a holy Bible, the word holy means separate, set apart, different, unlike anything else. What makes this collection unlike anything else? And then how do we know what we have is, is real? So we're going to talk about that today, some um, three important truths about Scripture. And the first thing we're going to talk about this, where it came from, is the Bible came from real people. We have to recognize that. This is not a book that was, you know, uh, uh, written by, uh, you know, just fic uh, fiction writers, right? It wasn't written by people that were trying to sell a bestseller and this made up their own story or things like this. And we read scripture, we're reading the ancient writings of actual real people who were going through real things in real history. Right? They, they, were, they were struggling, and they saw faith, and they had doubt, and they saw God, and then they also saw their own brokenness. These were real people that were living in real time and in real space. I think sometimes because it's old, sometimes we just think we, we put it in that sepia kind of film in our, in our mind, in our imagination, and we picture that those people were like either perfect saints or like they were, they were imaginary people, like they didn't really exist, but tell you what, they were just normal people like you and me that were living in this world. And so they were addressing, when we read the Bible, recognize it was written by real people to real people. 
It was addressing real circumstances. When you read the text, there was a reason it was written. Which of us has ever sat down and decided, hey, I'm just going to write something for no good reason? There are a few of you that are weird, but the rest of us, it's not something that we typically do, right? Something was going on. Something had to be addressed. There was something of importance that needed to be recorded, and they sat down and they did it. They took the time, and and the fact is they couldn't just sit down on their uh, laptop or their phone and just start typing, right? That they actually had to go and find papyrus or animal skin, which was very expensive and difficult to make. They were motivated to address something. There was something behind this. There's a reason that we don't have tons and tons and tons of ancient writings. There was a cost to it. The things that they were addressing weren't, hey, what are you going to have for dinner tonight? They were big things that real people were really struggling with. And if you read the scripture and you miss that, you miss the humanity of the text. Now, some of you know my, my faith history, but those, I mean, I went through before I became a Christian. I practiced other faiths because I wanted to see what was true. I read their ancient texts I, with their leaders and things, trying to learn what is true. And one thing that was interesting, that's unique about Scripture, is it's not this fairy tale, perfect of, uh, story about, hey, this is the way things ought to be from this perfect perspective, from this fictitious character that always has it right. And we read in the text, I mean, read the Gospels. Even the Gospel writers themselves tell you how they blew it, right? Like they'll say, yeah, Jesus in the night he was crucified, we all abandoned him. Right? They, they tell you their failings and their things like this because the story is not about them. We read some of the prophets and they tell you in this particular time, we were worried that God wasn't going to show up because in the moment God hadn't shown up yet. And there was panic and fear. You read in the Psalms and you read like David when he's being persecuted wrongly by this, by this king and sometimes by his son and these people are coming out to get him and he didn't do anything wrong and all that kind of stuff. And you read the anger that he has. And he's like, God, kill them. Right? You feel this wrath, this, 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 uh, but then he gets to a point where he remembers God's grace and his mercy, and you see him hand over his very real anger and fear and frustration over to God, and you see the difference that it makes in his heart. These are real people. I would say that there is no more human book in all of human history than the Bible. The 66 works that are in there were by people. God didn't just show up into some cave and just dictate He formed his people to perfectly pen his message through their humanity in the midst of their brokenness. I think how significant that is. Because how many of us live lives that think that God can only use us when we're a perfect instrument? But God can write the most perfect of all things his perfect and unflawed inspiration through perfectly flawed people. God is at work in humanity. And he works through regular people. And he gave us his holy word through them. And so in it, we engage with them in the joys and the sufferings of life. In the glories and in the failures. We see the, the heights of, of faith and faithfulness, and we see there the valleys of brokenness, of infidelity, even spiritually and emotionally. 
we see in the Bible the perfect reflection of what it means to be human. Not what it just means to be human in, in the United States in the 21st century, but what it means to be human. This resonates with people throughout time. This book, which was written over 1,500 years in three continents and three languages by 40 different authors from kings to, to prisoners, it still reveals our souls and our spirits, doesn't it? As you read the text, don't you seem to find yourself there ourselves there? Isn't it perpetually relevant? It's above culture. It goes right to who we are, which is why it says in the text, oftentimes it's like a mirror. Second thing we find, the Bible just doesn't come from real people. It, it came from real history. Real people lived in real time. When you read the Gospel of John, you know there was a guy who was a teenager who had this encounter with the Messiah, how weird that would be. Middle class dude, fishing family, got a good business on this nice lake, beautiful place. I've been there, it's nice. And all of a sudden, you have this prophet shows up and says the Messiah is coming. And John, who's this young man, like a lot of folks who come to faith in their 13, 14, 15, 16, right? He has this encounter with this prophet, this amazing man who also had his same name. And he was saying, be baptized, right? Repentance of your sins. You're going to make the way right because the Messiah is about to show up. And so he does. And we all can remember, those of you who were, who were teenagers once, those who aren't yet, trust me, you'll get there. It's fun. But, but, those, but you were there and you feel like he was like, you know what? There's this amazing thing that's about to happen. And then Jesus shows up. And this great prophet who brought all the people of Israel, hundreds of them, baptizing them in the Jordan River, he looks at the Messiah and he says, I can't even tie his sandals. And then he sees this, uh, this Messiah be baptized out of faithfulness by this prophet. And in that moment, John witnesses one of the most amazing things. I can't even imagine what it would have been like, but he was there. He saw it with his eyes and he heard it with his ears. He saw he saw the dove, the Holy Spirit, coming out of heaven like a dove and lighting, landing on Christ. He heard the voice of God declare to all those there, the prophet and everyone, that said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you think that would change you? Yeah, because his life looked radically different from that point on. From that point on, this young man followed this Messiah, was there at every single miracle, saw him transfigured, saw him, uh, people trying to beat him up. He saw all kinds of stuff happen. He saw this man heal people and cast out demons. He was there. He lived it. He didn't do it, but he witnessed it all. And he saw that Messiah die. He was the only one who was brave and dumb enough to stand right before the cross. As he stood there, and his Lord and his Savior, this majestic God, who he himself saw transfigured, he saw him crucified, with the crowds around him shouting, crucify him. He stood next to Jesus' mom, a real man in real history, holding and consoling a mother as she saw her son wrongfully murdered by the Romans and the crowd. Can you imagine? For hours, not for minutes, for hours. 
he heard Jesus say to him, John, take care of my mom. Do you think that might make an impact? You know, when John writes about this, there are not an absence of tears on the page. That was brokenness. I mean, what do you do when you see God be murdered by your enemy? He was there. He was also there when he heard the rumors of the resurrection. He was the first to outrun everybody else because he was still a teenager. He had a young body. And he made sure he told everybody that he beat Peter. I think that's hilarious. Because <laughs> he's a real dude. He stuck his head inside of a very real tomb because he knew exactly where it was. And he saw it was empty. The very first. The scripture talks about real history by people who were there. We need to understand that. It's not just written by just whosoever. When you read the text, it's important for us to understand what was going on. What's the context? Why was it when we read in Psalms, there's some of those Psalms that, that we read David's heart just being poured out and there's just such pain? Right? Because you can't appreciate the grace and, and the, the peace that he re eventually resolves into if you don't understand the circumstances that he's in. It's a lot easier for somebody to say, have a great day, right? God is good when you're having a great day. It's an entirely different thing for somebody to say, I, I want you to have a great day because God is good when they're going through their worst possible thing. Isn't it? <laughs> the Bible talks about history. It's a book of real history, which is one of the reasons that I became a Christian. It wasn't written by somebody who went into a cave who had an encounter with an, an, an angel. It didn't happen like that. It's not a trust me story. It wasn't like God just sent a messenger and says, here's some plates that no one can read and here's some really cool 3D glasses. I want you to go hide behind a tent and then just tell everyone, I'll show you what it says. No, no, this happened in real life, in real time, in real space. Everybody knew that Jesus was crucified, and everybody in Jerusalem knew he wasn't in his tomb anymore, and after he walked around for 40 days, everyone had a pretty good idea that he raised again from the dead. Not done in a cave. Prophecies were given in this that were big time prophecies, like a guy we're going to talk about in a couple months named Isaiah, when the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by a very real army who had already conquered another massive city, and they were about ready to come and destroy Jerusalem itself. And he's sitting inside of these city walls, planning to be starved to death, planning to have their skin filleted off of them like it happened in Lachish, the city that fell right before them. And they were ready for the Assyrians to destroy them. And God gave him a prophecy. And he said, guess what? Within nine months, by time somebody, a virgin who's never had, conceives and bears a son, you're going to be frying. In nine months, the army's going to be gone. That would be impossible. A real guy who couldn't deny his circumstance and everybody around him saw the circumstance and he had the audacity to say, I heard from God and say, and within nine months, we're going to be fine. And these chumps that are out there, they're trying to take us, that general's not even going to be around anymore. And guess what happened within nine months? Oh, they were totally fine. Oh yeah, and that chump who tried to say, take them over, yeah, he was killed by his, his son, just like God prophesied. The Bible happened in real history before everybody. 
Not in a cave, not in some secret room, not a, hey, trust me. Which is why the Bible is such a friend to archaeology, and archaeology is such a friend of the Bible. We went to Israel. We went to places that people for hundreds of years said, those places can't exist. That's just a fairy tale. And then they dug them up. And they're like, well, what do you know? I guess that did take place just like it was written over and over and over again. The Bible is true. It shows real history, but it records history for us. But I think it needs to show us this, that the God is at work in real time and real space. Because I don't know about you, but my life takes time and real time and real space. That's where it takes place. I mean, I exist in an imperfect world with imperfect people doing imperfect things. I work in real history. And Scripture shows us our God works in real history. And He's accurate and He tells it like it is. Not some kind of Pollyannish story about how it should be but how it was, how it really was, and how in the midst of our brokenness and imperfection, God is still doing something amazing and perfect. It's a story for us. We have to stop taking the Bible. I I think it's so crazy when people are like, oh, the Bible is a fairy tale. I'm like, have you studied it? Have you looked at the history? In fact, there are people in faith who have gone through it and who started out as antagonistic to the faith, who said, we're going to show show that this is a fairy tale. And as they study it, they become believers. (laughs) And not just like, you know, a few, but I mean, some throughout history. I mean, all the way back from the Roman times to our modern age, it's been proving itself to be accurate and true, which is good because, you know, uh, Cheap sayings don't do a lot for me in life. People telling me, oh, this is the way I think life should work if things were perfect, that doesn't help me. Because my life has never been perfect, nor will it be in this lifetime. There's never perfect circumstances. But Scripture shows us in the midst of real life how real faith can really work. And so as we read it, We understand the Bible speaks to us in real time, in real space, to real people who live in real time and real space. But it's more than just a a history book that accurately records. Like if you say, I want to know what Jesus had to say, don't you want to hear it from somebody like John who actually listened to Jesus, spent time with him? I mean, that does help versus other people who came a couple hundred years later who say, this is what we think that Jesus said. Well, they might have some idea. But I don't know, the guy who actually listened to Jesus and was really close in an inner circle and had an in, like he really wanted to record what Jesus actually said and he had a vested interest in it and gave his life for that, maybe he's probably a trustworthy testimony of history of what Jesus actually said. That's why we can trust what the scriptures say. It's actual history. It's so good. But I say that it's not just that it's accurate. It's like, then how do we know that what we had that was originally written accurate, that what we have is, is what was originally written? Before I, I came to faith, and this was something that I had some, uh, my own, I, I had doubt, and doubt drove me to faith, which is a good thing, but it caused me to ask questions, and one of my questions was, when I was a kid, we would play this game called telephone. You ever done that? Yeah, it's a ridiculous game, and it's the more people you have, the more fun it gets, right? Because you could say something like, I wear shoes, 
And, you know, by the end, it's like zebras fly on airplanes or something like that. You're like, how did you get from here to there, right? Because you get like one little error that gets transmitted to another error, and by the time you get to around the circle, then it's like totally different. Well, the Bible is thousands of years old, right? The first scripture, uh, Job, was written, what, 3,500 years ago? That's a long time. That's a lot of telephone. How do we know Job is the same? How about Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus? That's 2,700. It's almost three millennia. That's a lot of telephone. How do we know that what we have was originally written? Which is a good question. Well, it's because of how it was recorded and how it was transmitted. It was treated as something different, something special. It wasn't as though people said, oh, well, these are decent books or whatever, so we're just going to kind of copy them, and if we make mistakes, then uh, who cares? No, the Bible was like the transmission was really, really important to the Hebrew culture, to, to the Roman culture, and to the, to the early church and how they got it to us. And so uh, we find that we have, for the, the Hebrew culture, uh, they would take scrolls, and it was the scrolls that wear out. They would get a scribe, right? And his job was just to do this. His entire life oftentimes was given to this. And he would go and he would say, that is a particular letter. And I'm going to write it down. The same. That's a letter. The same. And after they did that long painstaking process, then they would go through and they would count every single letter across and on the page. And if there was any difference, any jot, any tittle, anything was different, they would destroy the scroll, which is a big deal. It's not like you can just open up a new file, right? It'd be like a thousands of dollars kind of problem, right? So they were, they were really careful to make sure they got it right. But they were more in court. They would say, the scripture is so valuable. What's on this? We want to make sure it's absolutely perfect. But that scribe would then give it to another scribe who would double check, right? And so you have letter for letter accuracy. And how accurate was it? Well, there was these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You heard about them? Yeah, some kid threw a rock in a cave. We were there, Qumran. That's a hot, horrible place. It's great for keeping scrolls uh, intact. Anyway, the Qumran community had scrolls that dated all the way back. Some of them were even 200 years before Jesus came. And they're stored in these caves and, and really well-preserved. And so they have portions of like the, the book of Isaiah, like a large portion, some other of the books of, of the Old Testament. And the amazing thing is, is that modern Hebrew translations or copies are exactly the same as the ones that you have. I mean, think about that. That's over 2,000 years with zero difference. Why? Because the culture led itself to perfection because they recognized the word was different than every other word. There was also great proliferation with that. They had more than one copy. And so they had other ones to, to check with. And then they also memorized it. In the Hebrew culture, not everybody could have a Bible. It's like us. We have them in our pockets, right? We're going, hey, look at our Bible. Well, they had to memorize it. And so everybody in the community would know what it said. From the great-grandparents all the way down to the great-grandkids. And so if there was a mistake, do you think they would have found it? Yeah. Why so darned accurate? What about the Roman age? And do we have uh, the, we have the Bible not just in Hebrew, but also it was translated, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The Septuagint, miracle of how it was translated. You should read the story. It's really great. Same kind of dedication. And then we have the uh, Roman age where we have the, the church begins to grow. We have Constantine becomes a, a Christian, right? A believer. And all of a sudden the church is under persecution, can come out of hiding. And the church is now just a couple hundred years old. 
right? And so what we have is we have the, the church, they have these Hebrew writings, you have some Aramaic, you have some Greek, the New Testament books, right? And they put them together and they make sure that they have the absolute best copies of everything. One thing that the Romans did not spare was expense, especially in this. And if you doubt that, go see the Hagia Sophia in, in Turkey. It's amazing. And these dudes, when they put their mind to it, the Romans, they were like, we're going to get the very best, the very best, the very best, and they did. And it's interesting that their very best copies match the ones that came before them, because, but they were... They had the access to the oldest, to the newest documents, the, the best copies of the Gospels, of everything. They put them together. They uh, organized them. And then they made sure that they were accurately uh, copied and sent to all over different places all over through the world, which also led them to when the Roman Empire came in or the, uh, when the Roman Empire fell, and then we had the Holy Roman Empire. You have uh, the uh, Rome sacked, but uh, the the church stays, stays as a foundation for society through the midst of that great change in the Middle Ages. Well, we find that the, the copies, that the early copies, the Roman copies of the Bible into Latin, which was the language that most people spoke at the time, which we call the Vulgate, which means the vulgar language of the people. Again, great care taken to make sure that the books that we had and the letters that we had and the meanings that we had was accurately transmitted, but also was, was sent all throughout the world. And it's an amazing thing that you have this great uniformity from continent to continent, from language to language, which set us up then for the New, the New Testament age. The New Testament age, we find the Bible then being transmitted from the Greeks, right? From Greek language to, to we have uh, Latin. So we have both those kind of copies, as well as then later on with Gutenberg, it's pressed all through all the different things. It was translated into German and into English and to all of these other languages. And by time, uh, by the end of next year, well, actually, even now, I think, because 2020, by the end of this year, Bible copies in every single language in the world will be started. Isn't that crazy? Well, the neat thing about that is we find that you could go, I, when I go to Ukraine and I preach the word and it's in Ukrainian and I preach the, out of my Bibles, the translations are accurate. The meanings are there. That I think is phenomenal. But the differences that we might have, like in the New Testament age, like sometimes a pastor would, because this is how we are, we'll take our notes, and they didn't have scrap paper because paper is expensive. They would write their notes for their sermon notes on the side of the Bible, and then later on, they would give it to a scribe who would be like, I'm going to copy this for you, and he'd be very sure to put every single letter down, and then that's extra notes that the, that the pastor put in would be included now in the new copies of the Bible. Those are called glosses. You can find those like at the end of the Gospel of Mark and things like that. Well, the cool thing about this is that because the Bible went everywhere, it's all these different languages, and it's on all these different, uh, so many copies, that you can find out that was added, and it was added in this age, in this place, because all of the copies after that have that, but none of the copies before that had it. So was it original? Probably not, <laughs> right? All the copies throughout the rest of the world don't have that, except for in this area. Probably that was the one that was a little different which allows us to have comparative accuracy, right? We're able to compare, and we would say the vast majority, plus we have copies that go right back to just a few um, decades after the Bible was being written. So we have Gospel of, of John, fragments the Gospel of John that are actually in the second century. Think about that. You're like, well, Aaron, that's, you know, like 60 years, 70 years. That's a long time. Let me tell you, have you ever read the Iliad and the Odyssey? Homer, that dude, not the Diet Eats Donuts, but the Greek one, probably ate donuts. He writes this thing. We've read it, right? Most read it in school, and it's really kind of cool. It's a neat story. Well, 
have you ever had anybody say to you, that's not the original, that's not what Homer wrote? Anybody? No, all they, we read it and they're like, yeah, this is basically what Homer wrote. You know, we only have, we have less than what, what 300 copies of that? And you know, like the, the newest copy that we have, like the oldest copy that we have of Homer's Odyssey, where it goes back to? It, it goes back to about the, the 11th century now. I used to be the 1300s, but I guess they found another one. So it was like the 11th century. Do you know what was written? Well, it was written about 1,000 years before Jesus, right? So we have this gap. But think about that. That's like a huge gap. That's like over a millennia. But you have a gap in space where we have the, our oldest copy from when it was originally written. But we don't have any doubts that that's what Homer wrote. Why? Because we have enough copies and they agree pretty much. And so we're like, this is what he wrote. Do you know how many copies of the New Testament we have? A little over 30,000 now. It was up 29,000 we went to school 20 years ago, but archaeology, that's pretty cool. And those, the gap is sometimes within just a few decades. And we have the Vulgate, which goes all the way back to that third century, right? The, the translations that we are able to compare against that. And there is no difference between our copies and the original. You know, the Bible is unlike any other work. We are 99.94% positive of every single letter in the Bible. Every word that's there. You don't even get that with your newspaper. You know when they used to have those? Right? But even online sometimes, well, you copy a paste, there'll be an error. Even the things that we produce aren't as accurate as that. This, it's unbelievable. The confidence that we have that what was written here is exactly what was written originally. So when you read Isaiah, you are reading Isaiah's words. When you're reading the Gospel of John, you're reading the Gospel of John's words. I think that's amazing. And there is no other work in history that's anywhere close to this. And so we know that it, it stands the, uh, the, the test of time. There is no telephone game in, in God's message. He re- made sure that us frail humans somehow recorded it so perfectly, and now we have history and archaeology to test it by. It's amazing. And so we know that it's, it's true that way, but it's also accurate in authenticity. Like, there are people occasionally will come along and they'll be like, well, Isaiah had these prophecies that he, was, he talked about the fall of the Greek empire to the Jewish people, which happened in the Maccabees. And he writes about it with incredible detail, as well as you fought in Isaiah, uh, Daniel. Daniel writes these things. And they would say, Daniel said these things, and therefore they happened so precisely that you'll have critics that will say that had to have been written later. Right? Somebody had to come in and write those things for Daniel, right? Because there's no way that a person could actually record those things to be that accurate. And then we find manuscript copies that took place before the Maccabean Rebellion, and guess what? Those prophecies in Daniel are there. And we read, we have writings from religious sects from that time who reference back to Daniel's prophecies before the Maccabean Rebellion. And guess what? They talk about those things. What this tells us is that the Bible is, is accurate in its transmission. Sometimes people recorded and copied things they didn't fully understand, but it was in here and they gave it to us. But what it says and who it says it came from stood the test of time. And so, when you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it came from this guy named Moses in real time and real space who was meeting with God and helping his people leave oppression and start to take the bold step of encouraging them to cross into a promised land full of all of its risks and dangers and blessings. 
And that's where we read. He gives identity to the people through Genesis, shows us exactly who they are, and so doing shows us who we are. And shows us how to live and shows their failures and why they had to walk around the desert a little bit longer, like 40 years to and shows right before, and then he has his toes almost on the, on the verge of the Jordan as he would love to have crossed in, but as he was about ready to send them in in Deuteronomy. You get to hear this leader's voice. When you read in Matthew, you read the voice and the words of the, of the apostle who worked with Jesus, who was called out of a life of shame, of being a tax collector, hated by himself and his community, and transformed into a man of not only godly character, but timeless godly character you read their voice this is what we have is something special but it's not just the words of men through history to people in history it's it's the bible came from a real god that's the most amazing thing about it that's why it can be authority it's not that we have really accurate old books that are really accurate about history this was written by a real god it is divine. It was directed by God through imperfect people. In fact, our memory verse, all scripture is inspired by God. The Greek word there is like, if God breathed, it's like he spoke this to us. So I, I used this illustration last week, but I think it's good because it's on my mind because I went to that uh, Monet exhibit. And I know some of you guys have done that too, and it was pretty good, right? And as you go to the Monet exhibit, you see these masterpieces. This guy was just so talented. It's sick, right? It's amazing. And his art stands the test of time and all this kind of stuff. It's just beautiful. But how did Monet paint those? What did he use? Well, he used paints and paintbrushes. Kind of common everyday things. And nowhere in that exhibit did I see the perfect paintbrush in a nice you know, case for us all to see. This is the brush that painted these paintings. But in that, we read the history of how Monet was his process and those things. He was very particular. He would shape his brushes. He would pick just the right things and use just the right techniques to make these imperfect brushes make the perfect stroke. And so it is with God. He took these imperfect people, these prophets, these apostles, and he shaped them through their lives and through their history and their time and their space and everything that was about them and shaped them so they would be his perfect instrument for God to paint and to write his perfect masterpiece to us. If that doesn't show you the brilliance of God, he didn't just say, whisper in Isaiah's ear, hey, say this, or into David's ear, hey, say this. He shaped David in the midst of his pain and his struggle, and at just the right time, God said, now I want you to write this psalm. This is me proclaiming something beautiful to humanity through you. That's what he's done. And so we find that the, the Bible was directed by God. It was inspired by God. It was inspired by God for a reason. It was inspired by God to inspire us. It was God putting something in the page so that page could flow into us, that he could come into our lives. So it could teach us what is true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. <laughs> right? To teach us, to correct us when we're wrong and to teach us what to do what is right. And so how do we know what... How do we know this is God's word? How do we know that, why is it that we have certain books and other books didn't get in there? It's because you had some religious guys that had a power trip that said, we're going to include these books, but not these ones. Do you know there's actually qualifications for canonization? There were things that had to be, that there's boxes that had to be checked to say, yes, we're going to put these things in the word and other things that don't qualify don't get in. 
And you know what those were? Was first had to be penned by a prophet. Later, a New Testament, an apostle, which is also like a prophet, right? Who is that? That's somebody who God is directly speaking to and has a message through that person. And it's very clear to the prophet, God is prophesying. And it's very clear to the community that God is prophesying through this prophet. Prophets never were like in caves. You read the Old Testament. All of the prophets were very much out there. In fact, sometimes prophets had to do crazy things like get naked and like sleep outside, right, for a long time. Or marry these people that probably they wouldn't have married on their own, right? To make an illustration, right? And then there was tests for prophets. God would allow them to do things like they would predict things that would come true that they couldn't otherwise predict as evidence, or he would do a miracle through them, things that everybody in the community could see, right? Like when we were in Israel and we saw where God called down fire from from heaven, right? We had this Elisha. We see where God actually did this, and we realized when we were standing in that spot, it's the only place in the entire country that every other place in the entire country could see, right? God validates his prophets publicly. And he also writes in there, if anybody claims to be a prophet and they're not validated, then kill them, which cuts down on the number of, of fraudulent claims, right? So prophets or apostles, it's very clear if you're an apostle, an apostle, Jesus himself had to say, follow me. You had to have that invite. You had to be part of his 12. Now, of course, Judas was out and then we had uh, a new one came in, but then also we have after his resurrection, we have Jesus calling Saul. Paul, who writes a bunch of New Testament. He's an apostle because Jesus said, you are now mine. You're now my apostle. It's a a place in the church that only Jesus can give. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't know any prophets and I don't know any apostles. And so nobody I know can write scripture. In fact, in the scope of humanity, there've been very few prophets and apostles, which limits the number of people who are qualified to write these things. The second issue that we have, they have to have, be, has to be recognized um, inspiration. It's also known as the ring of, of Scripture, which means that as you read this, it's gotta, it has to have the authority of text. And I know that's subjective, and as a Western person, we hate that. To the Eastern ear and the Eastern mind, that's a very, very convincing argument. For me, I hated that. I'm like, well, the ring of Scripture, well, how do I know? Well, the people who read it first is what this means. That the, the people who were, uh, the, the guys who would speak, these prophets, they had to say, this is Scripture. And the people who heard it had to say, this is Scripture, which is not a normal thing for anybody to say, especially a prophet whose job is to guard the, the protection of, of Scripture, right? So to guard, to make sure that it's true. But as the people who were there would say, yes, this is clearly God's Word. The third thing to have is theological coherence. That all scripture had to tie in together. It could reveal new things, but it couldn't reveal anything contradictory, right? So it could say something like God is one and God is three, not contradictory. That is a mystery, but it's something new. But it couldn't reveal something that's contradictory. God is one and God is not one. That makes sense? So all scripture was coherent theologically, which is remarkable because it was written over 1,500 years in three different languages by 40 different authors from a vast variety of backgrounds, the fact that they could agree on the, on the key doctrines of, of truth is amazing. The last part, it had to be instantly accepted. If Scripture can't come and become Scripture and, and ver- uh, validated as Scripture or believed to be Scripture through a process of, uh, uh, of just of time, the saying, well, uh, my grandparents read this and they said it was godly, and then their kids' grandparents, they would say, well, my parents said it was godly, or maybe they said it was from God. And then their grandkids would say, oh, this came from God, right? That's the whole idea of it becomes like this, this uh, uh, legend, and that's how Scripture comes. That's not how it happened. 
Scripture had to be validated by the very first hearers, which means not just the prophet who sent it, but those who heard it from that time on, they had to say, this speaks with God's authority. And we know that we have letters from the Apostle Paul that were written that the people read and they were like, this doesn't speak with God's authority. It's like we have extra letters to the, book, uh, to the church at Corinth. Paul wrote them. The church recognized. They would say, this is from Paul. It comes to us with apostolic, apostolic authority, but not God's authority. So they didn't record them. They didn't put it in the canon. And it didn't, they didn't add it later on. From the first time it was read, they had to be say, this is Scripture, which is a pretty amazing thing. And so that's why we have the books that we have. And that's why we don't have a lot of books like the, the, the Gospel of Thomas and all those other things that were written by, by people who were not apostles because Thomas didn't write the Gospel of Thomas. It was a guy years later, 200 years later, who said, I'm going to write as though my name was Thomas. I'm going to write things that I wasn't there to see. And then the people who first heard it were like, that's not Scripture. It's only now, us, thousands of years later, we're all worried about this. Well, was it Scripture? The only church was like, no. That's why it doesn't match. That's why we have the books we have. And that's why there's certain books aren't in there that aren't in there. Now, you say, Aaron, but that's, that's nice and all, but what's the evidence? What's the evidence that there's actually God's word? And there are four evidences that God has given us that this is actually inspired. And the first evidence that we have is timeless wisdom. There is a lot of things written from ancient history that have no application. In fact, there is advice from the 1950s and 60s that would be very irrelevant to you today, Right? But here we have a collection of 67 books written thousands of years ago that are very relevant today. So relevant, I talk about them every single week. And every single week, there's an application. And it's not just relevant in the United States in the 21st century. It's relevant in every single place, in every single time, in every single culture. That's why it's being translated into every single language. These are timeless truths. They don't just talk about small things, but even the deepest things in life. You tell me that a person or a collection of just some old guys were able to do that, then these were really, really incredibly wise humans. This is an amazing collection. And the evidence is the mind is greater than that of man. In fact, I've been reading the Bible now for over 20 years. And that's a short time for some of you guys. I still, every single time I get there, something profound. Something new that I hadn't got, but something that's like right that I need today. It's amazing timeless wisdom. The second proof that we have is that there is internal and external uh, uh, claims to divine authenticity or authority. The Bible says in the Old Testament and New Testament, thus saith the Lord, <laughs> right? It claims to come from God, which I know is circular reasoning. You can't say it's God's word because it says it's God's word. Oh yeah. But none of these other books that I read when I was looking at other religions were like, this is God's word. They were like, these are the words of the prophet or this is the words of an angel that might have said something, right? But this, was, this is the actual words of God many times. And if there was no other evidence, I granted, that would be thin. But it's important for us to say it says it's God's word, so at least it claims it. If it said this is not God's word, and then later on we came and said it was God's word, then we have a problem. But it claims it. But then we have the external evidence of it where Jesus himself, who is God, who put on flesh and lived, and we know many doubts of it, we know exactly what he said. He says, this is God's word. And if God accepts it and says, yep, that's my word to you, that's pretty convincing for me. The third one is fulfilled prophecy. There are so many prophecies in the, in the scriptures that talk about things that are going to happen, and then later they happen with exact precision that we cannot just chalk up to fortune or luck. 
going to talk about Daniel and, and, and the whole history of, of the world and the, and the major empires that are going to come in the fall and all that kind of stuff and what happened in the order that happened. How about the 300 prophecies about Jesus that were fulfilled? I mean, specific things. The town he would be born into, right? I think that's a pretty significant thing. The city that he would die in, the manner in which he would die, which didn't even exist at the time that the prophecy was given how he would be treated while he was on the cross, what the people around him would say, what they would do with his clothes when he was dying, and where he would be buried exactly. That's pretty specific. There's over 300 of these fulfilled perfectly in Christ. Or how about Jesus' prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem 70 years before it took place? Fulfilled to the letter. And those of us who went to Jerusalem got to see the evidence of that. How amazing. People can't come up with that kind of prophecy. Ask your weatherman. Can't be that accurate. <laughs> I would say the last proof, though, is the most convincing to me, and that's this. There's our, these aren't just timeless truths. They're transformational truths. The Bible is changing me. It's changed people throughout time, but it's changing me. When I came to faith, when I was a young man, I had a really bad temper, and I hated that about myself. I wanted to please God, and I wanted to do what was right, but I had this temper. And um, you know that I'm pretty, I'm mostly a nice person, right? And I would get along with my friends and things like that, but I would get pushed too far, and I would lose control of myself, and I would do very, very bad things. I put my best friend through a wall twice, I had an outburst that was so bad that I got kicked out of basketball for the remainder of my high school career. That's pretty bad, right? I, uh, I threw a desk like a Chinese throwing star. I broke off the top and threw it at one of my math teachers because she deserved it. But <sighs> and it stuck into the wall. And I, I, I mean, it was embarrassing. And I was living in fear of myself. And I tried to do all the things. I read the anger management books. I, I went to the counselor's classes. I did all of those things. And I tried to change me. And I couldn't change me. And I was terrified of me. But then God did something. The fruit of the Spirit. It's love. It's joy. It's peace. But it's also patience and gentleness, and kindness, and praise God's self-control. What I couldn't do in me, God has done. And he's continuing to do. He changes my mind, like it says in the Word. He actually changes our brains and how I think and how I perceive things. A renovation of the mind. You can never ever be able to convince me that this isn't powerful because it's doing something in me. As I read it and understand it and apply it, it changes me. Deeply, profoundly, consistently changes me exactly like it says it would. And I'm not the only one. I stand with billions who have given their lives to obedience to the teachings of God's truths for thousands of years. And we see these words not just change people, but families and societies and culture itself. There is no other collection of books. There is nothing else in the world that has changed the world as much as this. 
and it's still changing people today. It's not just God's word. It's God's word for us. It's God's word for you. So how do we apply it? Well, I think we have to recognize what the Bible is. It is a library, right? But it's more than that. It's God's message. It came from real people to real people. It came from real history to a person in real history that needs a God so desperately. But it is God's inspired, perfect truth for us. And this is why it's our authority. This is why we can allow it to to give us that place that we can form our lives to it. It is unlike anything else. So for us, I think the best thing we do if God is talking is for us to listen. And he's given us his word. And so that's what I'm going to challenge you to do. If you have your connection card, I've got some next steps, some challenges for you to begin to apply this. Think how what a miracle this is that we have. What a waste it would be to hear this, to know God's word and having it be brought down from, the, from millennia to you and then to not pick it up and not to apply it. So let me help you do that because I know it can be intimidating. First thing maybe you want to do is just start with one verse. Maybe you memorize 2 Timothy 3.16, the two time mouthies and the three 16-year-old girls. You start there. This week, think about that. Allow God's word to penetrate into your heart and life. Or maybe you need to do is you say, you know what, I'm going to start reading this. And I get it. It's, it's sometimes difficult, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. How do you read God's word? Right? So I encourage you to come back. How do you use it? How do we read God's word? How do we use it? And one thing we're going to do as a church, we're giving you a tool. It's called the Read Scripture app. On your yellow sheet of paper in your bulletins, there's a place you can scan and download the thing. And we're going to start in February, kind of read through the scriptures together. It's got videos that give you context and all that kind of good stuff. I encourage you to start reading God's word. And you don't have to wait till February. You can start now and you'll be ahead. Yes. And if you don't like that, we've got paper copies. Or if you just want to pick up the Bible, then let me say, why don't you start with the Gospel of Mark? Just pick it up and start. And if you need a Bible, take one. And maybe that's where you begin this week. So I'm going to start. I'm going to read this word. Or how about for you? Uh, you need to pray for faith. Doubt is not a sin. Unfaithfulness is a sin. Doubt is not. It's one of the reasons I named my son Thomas. He's one of my favorite apostles because he was the one who was brave enough to say, I don't believe you. I want to see it. I love that. And I'll tell you, this is for you. If you have doubt, good. Just like my doubt drew me to faith, allow it to allow you to investigate, then do that. But I say this, don't do it alone. God says he'll meet you there. So if you have doubt, pray for faith. Allow God to reveal his truth into you. In your life, if you are struggling with God's word and that, just pray, God help me. You've claimed it's your word. Jesus says it's the word. I see the hits, but I'm struggling. Then pray for faith. God will do his work and you will be amazed, but he is faithful. And maybe that's where you start this week. Maybe what you need to do is join a life group. God's word tells us that we're in this together as a community. And if you need to connect with the brothers and sisters of faith, people who are committed to the word, then we would love to have you join one of our life groups to grow in that family as we talk about God's word, as we grow in that word together. Hopefully, one of these is something that you can do. I encourage you to make your commitment. And here in a minute, we're going to have our worship team come out. They're going to close us with a nice worship song. And as they do, would you please take this connection card with your commitments and your prayer requests and, and drop that in the offering basket along with your tithes and gifts. I would be appreciative. Let me pray for you and for your, your commitments uh, as uh, the worship team comes out. And then... Uh, 
we'll let them have it. Let's, let's uh, pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, not just out of blind faith, but it revealed truth from history, from those that were there, but also validated in so many ways for us. And so God, thank you that you spoke to us in a way. You said, yeah, we can have faith, but a reasonable faith. But more than that, then you showed us, you gave us a word that can show us what's wrong in our lives and teach us to, to do what is right. So Father, help us to apply that word into our lives. Help us to be people of your word. Let us listen to you, especially this year as we, as a church, come together and we read your word together. Make our ears twice as big as our mouths in this, Father. Help us to hear you. And so we can listen and respond. Father, for the commitments we made today, I ask that you would bless those. Help us to keep those in a way that draws us closer to each other as it draws us closer to you. Father, we pray for our tithes and our offerings as well. Please bless those and use those to build your kingdom in us, in this space and through us, into this community. For we know you love this world and we know that you deserve glory. So would you receive both? We ask in Christ's name, amen.